I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up a tad. We're going to talk a little bit about the election. But before we do, we've got two very special guests with us. We have our Good Faith Media interns, Rebecca Gordon from North Carolina and Christopher Adams from Georgia. And they're going to be joining us live here in just a second to talk not only about the internship program here at Good Faith Media, but we're going to get their hot opinions on the election as it unfolds this week. So stay tuned. Autumn, how are you doing this week? Are, 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 are you breathing okay? Left. You're what? No, there's no fingernails left on my hands. There's no dark chocolate left in the house. Um, my hands are sweaty. I just keep hitting refresh on Twitter because I just think that's probably going to be the quickest way to find out where we're going for the next four years. And when you said dark chocolate, you really meant your liquor cabinet, right? <laughs> I mean, I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> I didn't see what was spilling the dark chocolate. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, it's How been, a, doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. It's uh, been a really stressful week. It's been interesting to see. Uh, you and I got out uh, around Oklahoma City on Tuesday, on election day, saw multiple lines, people standing in line to exercise their right to vote. It really was a beautiful thing to see, no matter uh, who you supported in this election. Uh, to see democracy in action is always a good thing. And more people have voted and participated in the 2020 election than ever before. So America, good job on participating. And so we're really proud of, of everybody who, who got involved. And uh, I had a one of my sons actually volunteered uh, at one of the polling places and got up at dark 30 and went and uh, was there all day and had a good experience. So thanks to all of our volunteers who are out there doing their civic duty. Well, Autumn, we've got some special guests with us today. At Good Faith Media, we have an internship program called Ernest C. Hines Junior Internship Program, named after Professor Hines, who was a longtime church leader and professor emeritus of journalism at the University of Georgia's Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. He worked there for 43 years, and he was a loyal church member at First Baptist Church of Athens, Georgia. And because of a very generous grant from their foundation, we were able to establish an internship program here at Good Faith Media. And our very first interns joined us this last fall. And welcome to the pod, Rebecca Gordon from North Carolina and Christopher Adams from Georgia. All welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not only have we enjoyed uh, you uh, helping us with podcasts, doing some production and interview stuff, but just uh, having you around uh, and you know having your insights and thoughts on what's going on, not only within the company, but within the issues that we face here at Good Faith Media has been wonderful. And so before we get into what you actually did uh, as interns at Good Faith Media, tell us a little bit about yourself. So Rebecca, why don't you go first? You're in North Carolina, but there's so much more about you. Yes. Um, so I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and then went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, go Heels, um, and then went to get my Master's of Divinity at Campbell Divinity School. And I now work at Trinity Baptist Church in Raleigh with the students and college and young adult 
ministries there. So that's um, a lot of fun for me to do. And so ministry for you at uh, Trinity and Raleigh is with COVID going on, obviously there's probably been some changes there at the church. How are you guys adapting during this pandemic? Uh, Zoom and Zoom and a lot more Zoom, basically, uh, is the synopsis. Uh, But yeah, it's been challenging, uh, to say the least. We've been doing Zooms pretty much the whole time. um, And I've just sort of started meeting our our youth outside um, and with masks, obviously. Um, But it's been actually kind of fun. Amidst all the challenges, it's been fun to have an opportunity to just be creative Mm-hmm. Um, cause a lot of times in church ministry, I don't know if y'all knew this, but people like for things to say the same. Um, no, we don't know what you're talking about. hear about Baptist. Um, but it's just been fun to try different things. Um, we've been doing more with like social media, mm-hmm. um, blogs. We even are kind of doing this like devotional podcast thing now. Mm-hmm. So just trying new things and being creative has been pretty fun during oh, this time. Great. And Christopher, you're a recent graduate from Duke Divinity. So tell us a little bit about you. Yes, sir. So I'm actually coming to you from Watkinsville, Georgia, which is about eight miles outside of downtown Athens. Um, And it's been neat to be a part of this uh, internship program named after um, Dr. Hines, late Dr. Hines, who um, went to my church, or I guess I went to his church. Um, (laughs) Yeah, he was there a long before you were, Christopher. (laughs) Yes, Uh, But I recently graduated from the University of Georgia in 2017 with an undergraduate degree in communication studies, not in Grady School, but it's um, similar kind of work, but different side of the ball field, maybe. Sure. Um, In rhetorical studies. But um, I was in the marching band at the University of Georgia, and I was really proud of that. And something like music is kind of something that I hold dear to. Um, Super cool. So oh, unfortunately right now, those are kind of the only things I can talk about since graduating Duke. Um, I've actually moved back, like I said, to Watkinsville, which is sure. home. Um, Cause I've been looking for some work since graduating Duke, but um, I'm currently now working part-time at the university of Georgia or the Georgia botanical gardens mm-hmm. um, as an assistant. And so that's been sort of my, you know, jumping from internship to job, sure. part-time job to other part-time jobs, just kind of piecemealing together some work right now as I sort of figure out what's next when it comes to ministry and vocation and call. Right. Tell you what, uh, I've heard that story time and time again over the last uh, several months from graduates, uh, both undergrads as well as postgrads uh, coming out after May trying to find employment. It's just, uh, it's just, it's tough right now. But uh, I'll tell you, like I told them, that hopefully this thing is going to be over soon and that uh, the job market will begin to open back up. And uh, seeing the creativity out there from our graduates and students has been really remarkable. So I'm very confident that many of you are going to be employed very quickly once this thing lifts. And that's where the opportunity, I think, lies. Um, The hope maybe lies is sort of the opportunity for creativity and hopefully more and more communities and churches might be open to to younger voices that are willing to sort of step out and try something new. So, yes, I agree. Yeah. 
Excellent. So, so both of you uh, are part of our internship program. As I said a moment ago, you're actually our first two interns, which was very exciting. Nobody can ever take that away from you. You may not want to admit that, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you're our first two interns. So tell our audience a little bit about uh, the internship program. What were you able to do when uh, you joined the staff here at Good Faith Media? Well, I'm just glad that we were first because I don't know if I would have made it through the grueling application process. <laughs> um, so we, we got lucky, uh, but no, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we um, do slightly different things, I'm sure, so I can't really speak for what Christopher's been doing, but I've had the chance to write articles for Good Big Media, um, do podcast editing, interview for the podcast, sit in on staff meetings um, and book publishing meetings and just see kind of that whole process from start to finish. Um, and so all that, especially just kind of y'all's like brainstorming as a staff and um, as you think of content and things like that has been really fascinating for me to just kind of be like a fly on the wall for all of that. Mm-hmm. So and, you know, that process, that process looks like us just basically throwing spit wads at the wall. <laughs> right now. Hey, like, don't tell our trade secrets, Autumn. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> We're a, we're a well-oiled machine over at Good Faith Media. It's just been, I mean, I have to thank both of you for your patience with us because we're just getting our feet underneath us. And we officially just launched in July and trying to figure out what hats we wear and what hats we're going to wear for a bit till we get this thing settled out. And then the whole actual world is sort of spinning out of control. Um, you guys have just been great. And it's been so nice having folks that are way smarter than me come in and just completely handle things. <laughs> and so I, I'm just shocked by the quality um, and just, the heart that you guys have brought already and we're thankful for you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Rebecca, it'd be easy to ask you, we're going to get to Christopher here in a second, but it'd be easy to ask you what your favorite part of the internship program was, but I'm not going to ask you that. What I want to ask you is what surprised you about kind of getting a look under the hood of an organization? Uh, you know, obviously we just merged, but there was a mer- we were cre- Good Faith Media was created from a merger between Ethics Daily and Nurturing Faith. What surprised you, you know, now that you've seen how this thing operates and, and how it moves and structured and, and the creation of content? Yeah, I think there's there's two main things I would say. Um, first, just like how much, um, how many people there are and how much work it takes to kind of put all this stuff together and make this stuff happen. Um, I don't know if people even know how big the staff really is, especially when you consider the kind of people that you work with in other groups like Faith Lab and stuff like that. And there's just a lot of different people doing little jobs to get things done from start to finish, especially at that book publishing meeting. It was clear that it's just so many, it takes a lot of people, takes a village um, to publish a book and things like that, which I think is really cool how many different people are collaborating. Um, but then the second thing that I think has been great to see, especially like Autumn was just saying in this crazy time in the election um, is just the way that you guys really push to have hopeful and positive and joyful content wherever you can find it or however you can get it in there. Um, and I think that's kind of what separates for me in my eyes, like good faith media from just another news source or news site is that they are putting that good faith media out there, <laughs> the positivity into the world, which has been really great to see. Oh, that's well, thank you. That, that means a lot. Appreciate that. Um, 
You know, I remember you, you mentioned how many people it takes to create content, whether that is digital content, uh, podcast, videos, book publishing. I can remember walking onto a set one time um, of um, somebody that was filming a, a new show. And I saw all these people behind the camera and sound people and video people and, you know, card. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world does it take so many people <laughs> to produce this one show? Well, now I get it. It takes a lot of people to produce uh, content. Uh, and every one of them is essential uh, and needed uh, because they do such a great job. So uh, thanks for, for participating. So, so Christopher, uh, what was some of the, your favorite things to do here at Good Faith Media during the internship? Um, I would say something that I really enjoyed actually happened before my official start date. <laughs> And that was writing and getting involved with Zach with the, some of the op-ed portion of what Good Faith Media offers mm -hmm. on the website. And I was sort of tasked with, as I was kind of, as both of us were kind of coming into the internship, I remember you all asked me to, or maybe either way, I was asked to kind of watch the RNC and, We're so you sorry. Know, <laughs> Which that was trial by fire, if there's ever been. <laughs> yeah, we uh, um, we pulled we pulled names out of a hat, and everybody pulled another name out, and then and you know finally we got you. <laughs> two, two of my <laughs> names for every one name. <laughs> Mine was the only name in the hat. <laughs> um, that was our hazing from the intern. <laughs> but I, I actually fell in love in a really maybe twisted way. I don't know. Uh, with that sort of writing where mm -hmm. it was watching the nightly sort of, um, you know, production and uh, rhetoric that came out of the RNC and right, you know, waking up the next morning and feel coming up with a, a thought or two where it kind of, where, inter where faith intersects with our sort of local state and national politics. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually something I did four years ago during the 2016 election. I was taking a class at the university of Georgia where we were studying campaign and U.S. political rhetoric. And so we studied the 2016 campaign week by week um, up through the debates and writing essays and papers. And actually part of that class was doing what I did. We were writing weekly op-eds for the class as if we were writing it to be published. And so it was neat to actually jump back into that same exact writing that I was doing four years ago in a classroom context, but now doing it as a part of an internship and then taking all of the insight that I sort of gleaned from four years ago into the RNC was actually really life-giving for me um, and very, it helped me grow in a lot of ways, but it also helped me sort of then infuse the questions of how does this intersect with our faith? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I was really kind of, that was a great first step for me, at least personally, um, to kind of step in to the shoes of the internship. Um, so that was something I really enjoyed. You know, that's fascinating that you mentioned that. I'm sorry, Autumn, go ahead. I was going to say, so as someone who looked and analyzed so closely the rhetoric in 2016 and the rhetoric in 2020, <laughs> can you, uh, what were the changes? Because what a, what a couple of, of uh, election terms to watch. Did you see improvement? Did you see progress at all or a move toward tolerance or inclusion or anything like that? I don't want to give away too, too many of my answers for our second segment. But I will Literally. say <laughs> one of the things that 
I noticed in the first election was the sort of us versus then rhetoric that was, you know, uh, pointed at either Washington, D.C. itself as sort of the swamp being sort of yep. the pivotal like metaphor, or it was um, us versus them, Americans versus um, Hispanic and Latino folks. You know, and it's very much the rhetoric is around, you know, they're not sending our, us their best and all of the racist and sort of bigoted rhetoric that, that sort of formed the platform of Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. And it's been fascinating and really depressing to see how that rhetoric has been turned in on itself within this country. And so where conversations were, began four years ago about a physical wall on the border to keep brown skinned folks out of our country. <laughs> Now the rhetoric has turned in on ourselves and we have built walls that are not seen that divide rural versus urban, um, poor versus wealthy, um, black versus white. And, and Trump has found ways and Trumpism, if you want to call it that, has found really fascinating ways to further divide us within the country. And so before or four years ago where we were coming off of an Obama presidency and the rhetoric was a lot different that shock four years ago has only become worse. Mm. Um, and it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we're sitting in the middle of waiting, for, you know, I'm sitting in Georgia waiting to see if Georgia's going to swing blue for the first time in right. forever. And Rebecca's sitting in North Carolina, probably, you know, twiddling her thumbs going, well, what are we doing? Hey, here? just, just so um, you both know, Autumn and I are sitting in Oklahoma and there's no doubt what we're sitting in. <laughs> so interesting christopher yeah. i uh hadn't really thought about that in, in quite that way but now that you're saying it it, it does because he can't he can't say i'm anti-washington right now because you've been there for four years like mm -hmm. and I, I have seen some people though continuing to post drain the swamp and i'm like you've been sitting in the swamp for four years <laughs> did you not pull the plug yet what's going on with that right all right. Well, before yeah. we move totally into politics here in just a second, I'm I got sorry. one more question. No, you're fine. That's a good question. Um, I'm going to ask you this because I found coming out of congregational work and pastoral ministry for over 20 years, uh, when I entered into uh, media, first through Ethics Daily and now Good Faith Media, I began to see the world a little bit differently. Um, because of all of the experiences I was having, all of the articles I was reading uh, that were submitted by incredible writers and columnists, the conversations that I was having, in just the three short months that you've been an intern at Good Faith Media, have you noticed any different ways you look at the world, you interact with the world? Has your mind changed on anything or do you see things differently a little bit because of this experience? So basically how maybe we've yeah has, has this been trans has this been transformative for you uh okay because i mean you know you mentioned a moment ago uh now you've got some experience in writing to a mass audience a lot of times especially students who come out of academia especially grad work are used to writing uh more academically um in, in the class and in an institution, but then all of a sudden they've got to translate that same thing with preachers. You got to learn how to communicate in a, in a broader sense. Uh, has there something that, you know, you've noticed just in the, your writing, your thinking, uh, your experiences that has been transformative for you? 
I guess I could speak to that. Um, I had a conversation with um, Reverend Dr. Frank Granger, who's a minister at First Baptist Church, Athens, my home church, um, and with Johnny Pierce. And we had a conversation about folks in seminaries or divinity schools or grad schools on, on wholesale, making that rhetorical um, transition to be able to translate and to kind of stand between, in a sense, the academic worlds and maybe the non-academic worlds, or to put it another way, you know, the flip from the flip side, you could say really the, the rest of the world and then the tiny little ivory towers. Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> um, that's really probably what is more representative. But um, I found that this internship has helped me get better and grow in being able to do that translative work um, or that translating the work that needs to be done that doesn't come out and speak all the the high jargon. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't have a degree, then you can't be a part of the conversation, but instead sits from a posture of openness and in, in hospitality, one that's inviting people into the conversation where they are. And I think that's really difficult for people who are coming straight out of grad school. And it's something I struggled with at first because um, I wrote a piece for Johnny for the magazine and um, at, at the beginning that came out, it should be out right now. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with it. And I noticed how much I tried to put the whole project on my own back right. and just write it myself without any sort of collaboration or help or um, insight from others. And I just finished a piece that's coming out in January for the magazine. And I started that process by talking with Frank and Johnny and saying, all right, wh where do I need to start? Where, where are some thoughts? Where, what are your thoughts about, you know, this idea that I have for this piece? And it's helped me become less individualistic in my sense of self, um, whether it's like academically writing or whether it's, or just writing in general. Sure. It's reminding, which I think Rebecca was speaking to that with the book publishing, that it, it really takes a village to, to do writing or, or to think or to be an organization. You, you can't shoulder this work on your own. And I think that's true for ministry as well, for folks who are maybe coming into this internship from ministerial uh, lines of work, that you just can't shoulder this kind of stuff alone. And you're not meant to shoulder it alone. And I think one of the hardest parts one of the helpful things that Good Faith Media has offered me is the sort of space to be vulnerable with myself and with y'all um, to grow in allowing for folks to help me as I am here to help y'all. Yeah. Well, you've done a great job. And, uh, you know, I just want to echo that. You just mentioned writing specifically. A lot of people don't realize that it truly is a collaborative effort. You know, I write a column every week. And many times I start that column by having a conversation with Zach and Cliff about what to even write about. Uh, when we were at Ethics Daily, our most difficult decision that we had to make each week was what not to write about because so much was unfolding so quickly. Same could be said even today. And even this week as the uh, election was unfolding and continues to unfold, I asked them, what do I, what do I write about? I mean, there's so many angles you could take. And then also just the editing process. I 
they are incredible editors. You know, at first when I would send my stuff to them, you know, being a preacher, I would send it to them and come back bleeding red. And I think, why do they hate my stuff so much? Uh, but then I began to realize, God, it was so much better when, you know, they would add and subtract to it. And, and so I've uh, really enjoyed the editing process. So, so yeah, I agree hundred percent. Rebecca, how about you? Um, so I think that I'm sort of in a, in a unique spot, um, in general throughout this whole internship, because I do serve in a church currently. Um, so, you know, I think growing up in more of like a progressive, um, church and then going to a, a pretty good college and going to seminary, you do get a very academic mindset when it comes even to faith. Um, and then a lot of times actually serving in church ministry, um, you don't get to use that academic knowledge very much, um, especially if you're not the senior pastor and you're not writing a 10-page mm. exegesis every week. So I sought out um, writing opportunities and this internship and other things like that because I missed that academic work and that that being really intellectually challenged. And so, um, you know, for me it has been a great pleasure just to have that opportunity again and really get to challenge myself and reflect on stuff like the RNC and the election, which I don't really, we don't talk about it. We don't even mention it. (laughs) Right. Sure. Um, And so I think one thing that I'm struggling with throughout the internship and probably will continue to struggle with is sort of that, that line of when you're in church ministry, um, a lot of times churches purposely lean away from, politics and, um, you know, controversial topics, but academically I want to talk about those things. So I think it's fun, <laughs> but also sometimes I feel, um, morally inclined to do so. Right. Uh, so I think figuring out that line is going to be something I deal with for a long time of, um, you know, when it's, when it's appropriate in the church setting and when maybe I have to go and find it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, like some of the things I wrote for, for good faith media, I would not talk about in church necessarily because people wouldn't like that. So that's, sure. that's a, it's a unique challenge of, um, church ministry. I think that's a long process of discerning. Yeah. Well, like Autumn said, you guys have been extraordinary and we've appreciated every day that we've had uh, with you during this internship program. You're going to be missed, but uh, we're going to stay in touch and you're going to keep writing and uh, submitting incredible articles for Good Faith Media and being interviewed uh, by a lot of our hosts. So uh, again, thank you so much for the hard work that you have put in as interns at Good Faith Media. And like I said, you're always going to be our first interns. Nobody can take that away from you. (laughs) So uh, we really do appreciate it. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Christopher and Rebecca about the election and uh, get their thoughts on what's going on in the world. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we're going to continue our conversation with Rebecca Gordon and Christopher Adams, our Good Faith media interns. And uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, First segment, we talked uh, about the internship program and what an incredible asset both of them were to Good Faith Media. And now we're going to talk about, you know, a really easy topic to discuss these days, and that is the 2020 
election. So, Rebecca Christopher, I'm going to go ahead and guess you are in your 20s. This is your second presidential election. That'd be about right. Third. Christopher, oh, it's your third. Okay, third presidential election. So, um, you've had, I guess it was uh, Obama, Romney was your first, and and then it got a lot better, didn't it? <laughs> In the last yeah. two. Uh, so, yeah. So, tell us a little bit about kind of what you're thinking. I mean, the country is, I mean, Autumn and I can remember probably more so me than, than Autumn can remember Bush Gore and uh, what took place after that election. But uh, we're, again, in unprecedented times. So what's your take on what's going on in the country right now? Christopher, I know that you got a hot opinion. Go right ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess I'll my first thought is I'll build off of what I was saying earlier mm-hmm. um, about the rhetoric sort of turning itself, the, the sort of divisive fear-based rhetoric turning itself inward on ourselves as a country and a nation. Um, which if there's anything I remember from my undergrad classes, it was that fear is the most, um, it's one of the best tools to use in a political campaign for short-term gain, but it is one of the worst tools for any sort of long-term uh, effects that prove to be positive or um, provide space for flourishing for communities. Um, and with that said, what I've been interested in, particularly starting with writing with the RNC this fall with y'all, has been how that intersects with the, our lives of faith, particularly within faith communities. And it's one of the most disturbing things for me that came out of the 2016 election was that that famous Pew study Mm -hmm. uh, that showed that in 2016, uh, around 81% of white evangelicals in the U.S. voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember that was actually a question for a seminary um, I was visiting and interviewing with, that was a question they asked me was, what do you, what do you think about the fact that 81% of white evangelicals voted for the guy? Um, and that for me is a, a symptom of a larger issue that we have in America where a, a cultural Christian identity has sort of wrapped Jesus in the American flag and has sort of called that good. And not only that, but Jesus has, it's a white Jesus that has been wrapped in the American flag. And it's, for me, it's it's very disturbing. And at the same time, it's also one of the things that sort of has called me in a, in a way into ministry uh, because there's so much bad theology in our churches. uh, And I think, that that bad theology is in some part core to some of the the terrible um, things we see in our in our in our country. Yeah, um, you know, Christopher. A lot, a lot of times we talk about you know faith guiding our politics or faith guiding policy, and that we should begin with a theological foundation. 
uh, the principles and tenets that we hold dear. And for those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers, that should center themselves uh, upon and around the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But it seems as though what you're describing, that there has been a shift, that theology or the, uh, theological reflection uh, system, or uh, systematic theology whatever you how you want to define that that theology no longer informs our politic but our politic now informs our theology mm-hmm. would you agree with that I agree. And a lot of that, I think, stems back to the early 1980s and the late 1970s when you have uh, Jerry Falwell and kind of the Oral Roberts, the moral majority sort of teaming up. Um, if you're, I wasn't alive, but, um, you know, during the early 80s with the Reagan era and you have that sort of marrying of the kind of moral majority and that that movement of evangelicalism in the U.S. with the with with the Republican Party. Um and it's historically, it's really interesting to trace those two movements within the U.S. And if you kind of follow follow the dots, you end up with a Donald Trump. Right. Um, I to, to be frank, four years ago, I really wasn't surprised that he won because the type of rhetoric that was coming out of the campaign was sort of the the, the mature child of the 1980s kind of merge of of these of this conservative politic with this very, very evangelical conservative um, theology that was sort of coming out at that time. And so I, I agree that there has been this Americanized uh, na- it's Christian nationalism, right, sure. uh, to, to be frank. It's, it's Christian nationalism at its worst. And in part of the problems that we're facing in this country, the fact that, you know, it's just looking at the stats a couple minutes ago and it's like, over 68 million people have voted for Donald Trump as of right now, you know, on November the 5th. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, I, I remember one of the first things a, a mentor of mine, uh, Reverend Paul Baxley, told me was he said, you know, if you go into a church and the church votes you in 51 to 49, he said, don't don't go to that church. <laughs> right. That's not, you know, just because you won doesn't mean you're, you're you, you really you really won. You're, sure. you're going into a place where for every person who wants you, there's someone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I see that similar co- sort of uh, politic playing out on our national discourse. You know, it, even though Biden at the moment sort of has a potential shot at winning this, that doesn't mean we're all going to be fixed all of a sudden. And that right. doesn't mean the people in the pews are suddenly going to, are suddenly going to let go of that American Jesus wrapped up in the flag. Sure. Right. And, I, and I think there is an opportunity for folks who want to step into those church spaces and and demand that there, like you said, that there is a a theology that drives people's lives that says, no, if Christ is at the center, then it looks way different than what's right. going on right now. And it demands empathy and it, and it demands love and it demands compassion and it demands grace, not only for yourself, but for his, but for your neighbor. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, and I just didn't think about it until you just vocalized it, that this election regardless of the candidates, we'll get to that here in a moment, has a very similar feeling to Obama-McCain when they ran against one another. We're coming out of the Gulf War. The economy was in shambles. Companies were going under. And it didn't matter who the next president was going to be. The issues that the country was facing were 
dramatic and life-altering for many, many people and as well as life-altering for the country. It feels like we're back here again. So many things going on. Obviously, COVID-19 and the pandemic, but we've got the social revolution regarding racial justice and uh, policing reform. We've got a struggling economy. Um, it just seems like it's whoever gets to be the next president, whether that's President Trump or Vice President Biden, this is a watershed moment. And so, Rebecca, I want to ask you this. Here in the next few days, one of those two candidates are going to be president. Both of them are 70-year-old white males. What in the world must your generation think about just the dynamic in itself? Because I'd be, I'll be honest, I'm 50 years old, and I'm shocked that we are, our, our choices are between two 70-year-old white males. Going, whoever is elected president is going to be the oldest president that we've ever had. I'm just, I'm just really shocked by that. So, you know, what kind of conversations are happening in, in your circles about where we are politically as far as just the choices that we have? Yeah, um, you know, I think that I'm not shocked. I wish that I was. Um, It's more like I'm disappointed. You know, it's like when your mom's like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Oh, that hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is how I feel lately. Um, Just a lot of disappointment. Um, I have this book on my shelf in my church office, um, Chris Hodge, Shane Claiborne's Jesus for President. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from 2008, I think, and they talk about Jesus is creating a new people and a new party. And the church is the social alternative for all of this, like bitterness and fighting. Um, and it's just, that just has not been the case mm-hmm. um, in 2016 or this year. Um, and working in a church, particularly, you see so much of that, that bitterness and that um, hateful rhetoric, even amongst church members on Facebook and other places. Um and I, I don't know if I, in, in 2012, my first election with Obama and Mitt Romney, I don't know if I was just young and naive and missing it, or if it really wasn't this bad. Um, and I think the church has... It wasn't this bad. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you'd have to go back to 1800 to get this bad. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the studies that psychologists and sociologists do on social media and um, you know, Trumpism and Christian nationalism and all that stuff over the next few years are going to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly as a, as a minister in a church, um, it's disappointing. And I think that if the world was here in 2012, when I was going to college, I wouldn't have gone to seminary and I wouldn't have taken this path because, um, a lot of times the church is just not the best place to be. And is, is the more hateful of the rhetoric that I'm seeing and my friends who have nothing to do with church, are the positive ones and they're my sources of light on social media. And I just think that that's really sad and really disappointing that we've gotten here in 2020. Have either one of your colleagues uh, experienced backlash by making a stand uh, for racial justice over the last several months? Because a lot of my colleagues and a lot of ministers that I've been encountering, and we've had ministers write about it at Good Faith Media, about the backlash that they have received 
regarding systemic racism, if they stand up and, and declare that systemic racism is a real thing and that uh, policing reform needs to take place, and God forbid they say Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, uh, they catch holy hell for it. Have you been hearing that as well? Yeah. Um, you know, after after George Floyd, um, we had a staff meeting for, I bet it lasted two and a half, three hours, um, just talking about, like, what we should do in the church. We um, approached this, and it, it, I think it was with good intent from our staff, but just the fact that we had to talk about it for three hours to come up with a plan was disheartening. Um, and then still a lot of the plans kind of centers on prayer and um, sort of more contemplative action than maybe a little bit of the more emboldened action that I would like to see. Um, But just that the having to kind of like walk on eggshells around things that in my mind are not, shouldn't be controversial topics. Sure. Sure. um, Is difficult for sure. You know, and Christopher, earlier in our staff meeting this week, you spoke beautifully to this. And so I want to return to it and talking about our current candidates and the issues that have been debated over the last several weeks. You made a comment in staff meeting this week that one of the things that's really depressing to you is that no matter who's elected, there's not going to be real change uh, take place in this country. Why do you feel that way? And do your peers feel that way as well? Amongst the peers that I um, had up at Duke when I was up in Durham, I think that was a sentiment that we all felt. Um, I think what we have witnessed over the past year, at least, at least, has been, and I, well, at least just in this current moment of this election, is the absolute limits of our two-party system politically. And to go back to your point about why do we have these 70 year old white dudes being the candidates, you know, apparently Biden's the best that the DNC has and the RNC has just decided that they're the party of Trump, you know, um, right. to, to the point of not even coming up with a party platform this year, just releasing a one page statement that says our platform is Trump period. Um, and because I guess to be to be open about it, I, I voted for Bernie Sanders in the in North Carolina back when I was living there in the primaries. And whether I, I thought the argument between Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg was a lot more of an invigorating conversation than Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would a lot more quickly be willing to step up and say there could be change if any of those three were were on the ballot running for president. But unfortunately, I just don't Biden to me feels sort of like the the, the lowest bar that we could hop over and still hop over the bar and still be doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to write off Biden and say that because he is very knowledgeable about the inner workings of our poli- of our political system and um, it's not that he has nothing to offer, but the kind of systematic change that we need is not going to come, at, at least right now. I think the best thing that Biden could do is surround himself with voices who are willing to help 
write policy and and think creatively and right. and think in diverse ways. Um, but I think we're seeing a, a stretched limit on our two party system where we can't get more diverse voices in in the in the conversation. And you know, even for Bernie's, I like Bernie, but he's also a pretty old white dude. But the fact <laughs> that he's continually been pushed out of the DNC for years and years and years and has never been invited in. Mm-hmm to me continues to show that there's just an essential brokenness in our political system. Um, so let, let me, I don't know if this, that answers your question. No, 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 because it's fascinating because, you know, obviously, you know, and you, you just spoke that you supported uh, Bernie. So it's not necessarily an age issue uh, because he's very similar in age to both the current two candidates. But the issues that he speaks about, the passion in which he speaks about them, um, certainly resonates with a younger audience. Do you think that the conversations that are taking place currently are not germane to your generation? Because Obama said something his first run for the presidency, I'll never forget. And he was talking about uh, the old conversations in the halls of Harvard and Yale. And what he meant by that, it was criticizing the baby boomer generation because we've been having these same conversations over and over again, decade after decade, and nothing has changed. And so at some point, you've got to change the conversation and you've got to see what these real issues are and try to address those in a very real and tangible way. Do you see, I mean, what are, what are, what issues are important to you uh, that need to be addressed that are not being addressed or they're, you know, somebody's tipping their hat to those issues and, and placating to you saying that they care about them. But what, what are the main issues that we need to be dealing with as a country? Well, I'll, I'll offer a couple of thoughts, um, but I also want to hear from Rebecca, see kind of what is on her mind too. Um, but just a couple of things that I know have been, that it at least invigorated me to look into a candidate like Sanders, who also I think is good at surrounding himself with voices um, that help spur on the conversation and enact real policy change. Um, or things like healthcare, where millions of Americans around the country are struggling to pay for healthcare, um, and they're having to choose between: Do I pay for healthcare this month, or do I pay for rent? Right. Or you know, uh, folks are not li- uh, they don't have a, a living wage where they're able to actually afford food and shelter and healthcare. Um, and another issue that I think is, at least for my generation, is student debt, and that's something that he talks about. Um, and, and other, I don't want to say he's not, he's the only one, but there are, you know, I think Warren had some conversations about that. And, um, I think Buttigieg might've had a little something about that, but, you know, student debt, I think is one of the biggest crises, financial crises that my, our Rebecca and our generation is, is facing, especially if you went to undergrad and graduate school right? and to, to grow up in a world where it says, go to college, go to grad school even, and you'll come out and get a great job you know, not only did that world not exist before the pandemic, but now it has only been, been heightened. 
Yeah. And, and it's know, not to say that none of us will find jobs, but you know, right. those are a few things that I see as sort of. But how, how many times have you, your generation, and Rebecca, you can answer this. How many times has your generation been told, oh, this is a once in a lifetime event, whether it is a pandemic, whether it's, you know, economic collapse, whether it's this or that. It seems like your generation more than any has heard that time and time again. Oh, this is just a once in a lifetime event. Well, how many once in a lifetime events can you go through? at, you know, 25, 26 years old? A lot, apparently. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think just to, to go back just one second, um, you know, the thing that does make me hopeful about a possible Biden presidency um, is that I, I, I agree with, I agree with Chris that I don't think he has that same charisma um, and some of the, the policy platforms that you just really want to get behind um, as some of the other candidates. But I think that before we can get to change, we're going to have to build some bridges um, because our, our legislative process is just so divided at this point that nothing ever gets done. Um, you know, I mean, healthcare, um, living wage, that stuff isn't getting passed just because people don't want to vote across party lines at this point. Um, and if we continue to go down this road of being more and more divided, I think that that's only going to get worse. Um, and even if things do get passed, it's going to get reversed four years later. And so I would really love to see a presidency that builds some bridges with these people that I do drastically disagree with. And I think we have like really different outlooks on life. But if we don't have any kind of bridge, mm. nothing is ever going to get done. Um, and for me, I mean, the one thing I would really love um, that I think is just a huge problem is the income inequality in our country, yeah. um, which is really an umbrella over all the things that Christopher said as well. Um, and people are going to have to come together and we're going to have to build some bridges if we want to get anywhere with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, our time together has come to an end, unfortunately, and we've been watching the news as we've been talking and still no outcome in the presidential election. So, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll find something, uh, out to very soon, but, uh, we really appreciate your time. More importantly, we appreciate both of you and the time that you've given good faith media over the last, uh, couple of months. You guys have been fantastic and we just cannot speak highly enough. So anybody out there now, I know Rebecca's already got a job, but uh, anybody out there looking to employ a very bright Duke grad, Christopher is your guy. So, uh, uh, he's looking for a full-time position. Well, before we let you go, we've got one question that we ask every guest, and we're not going to let you get away with not asking nope. it. So, Autumn, take it away. Yeah, so as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So as our interns, what are your more to tell? I think that there is always more to a person and more to people. Um, and so I think that we always need to give more people a chance and give, um, listen to more perspectives, hear another story, um, and be kind and just be aware that there's more to someone than meets the eye. Well said, well said. And Chris. So some thoughts that I had were, I said, more is not always better. And with many sensationalist news or entertainment outlets on a 24 hours news cycle feeding hysteria over constructive discourse, it is easy to be suspect of more, more, more. Yet, worlds, cr words create worlds. And for me, the quote more is less of a what, but more of a who. What is tacit and assumed for me is the quote who. Who has more to tell? 
And I think it centers around relationships. And so the, the, the more to tell is, is how do we, how do we create more bridges to use Rebecca's words, um, between each other, um, in the world we live in. Well, those are two beautiful answers. Thank you so much for being with us today. And like I said a moment ago, thank you so much for your time and being interns at Good Faith Media. Uh, we think the world of both of you, and uh, we appreciate your time here today. Thank you. Yes. Well, to our audience, uh, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith uh, Weekly. Um, next week, uh, Autumn and I will be back, and we'll still be waiting on Nevada, Nevada's account. Uh, <laughs> no, we should know something uh, here in the next couple of hours. And uh, when you're listening to this on Friday or over the weekend, uh, hopefully we will know uh, the results of the presidential election. But thanks for joining in to Good Faith Weekly. And as always, remember to live good faith. <laughs>